You're listening to Story Power, the podcast dedicated to disruptive storytelling. These are the stories of everyday people changing the world. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Welcome. So on today's show, I'm welcoming my friend Christina Button, the creator behind Black Women Plant Seeds. Welcome to the show, Christina. Thank you, Jen, for having me. I'm so excited. I'm excited, too. You and I have had opportunities kind of talk back and forth over the last six months or so, and I've really enjoyed that. I would love for you to introduce yourself to everybody. Like, If you were to just give your bio right now, Mm -hmm. what would you say today? Yeah, my bio. Um, I'm a black woman who lives right outside of DC, probably like 20 miles outside of DC. I have five children. My oldest is 15 down to six, four girls and one boy. Um, I got married very early on. I was 19 and my husband was 20. And uh, we met in high school. Uh, And we lived in the Virginia Beach, Hampton Roads area. Up until about 10 years ago, this coming May, we actually just traveled back home this past weekend to visit my grandmother to kind of help her out with some things. So it feels different, like driving home. (laughs) My husband and I were having a conversation about like just the culture of like where we grew up at and how much is changing. Gentrification is a big thing, but it's kind of weird and nuanced because the area that I grew up in is a very uh, military-based area. So it's kind of weird. It's another level of nuance with the gentrification there uh, because a lot of people are military, but they're also like moving in the Black neighborhoods too. (laughs) So it's just kind of like, oh, this is different, you know? Like, um, you know, just being over at my grandmother's house, I get so angry every time I go over there because I'm like, like, I'm all for unity and stuff like that. But the white folks that move in, they're just like, they don't understand like the history of where they are, where the space that they're occupying and just the consideration and regard for the black neighbors that they live with. You know what I mean? So that's the super frustrating part. It's like, yeah, the gentrification part is, you know, that's a whole conversation right there. But It's like, but now that they're actually in the neighborhood, it's just like, how are you going to be a good neighbor? You know, and that's a good question. Yeah. And so, you know, there's only so much you can do, like once they move in. But just the frustrating part is just how they treat the other black neighbors once they actually move in. And so Mm -hmm. that's a sensitive topic for me because, you know, the home that my grandmother still lives in now. Like, that's the home I grew up in. And I went to a predominantly Black school. And it's just interesting being, I guess, not quite middle-aged, but almost (laughs) middle-aged, you know, and seeing just the transformation of her neighborhood. But yeah, so I'm also a homeschool mom. i a home educator. I've been basically like um, home educating since my oldest, who's 15, I mean, since she she was born. (laughs) I know we weren't necessarily planning to like dig into homeschooling, so I won't spend too much time on this. But I'm curious, like, why did you choose to homeschool? 
And then what mm-hmm. has, how has your homeschooling evolved over time? And like, why, what's your why today? Cause I have a sense it might be a little bit different. I think our initial reason for homeschooling was the environment we were in at the time was in white evangelical church where there was a, a lot of other mothers um, homeschooling their kids. So that was an environment I was familiar with. And also we just weren't sure like what the future held with the school system that we were in at the time. So yeah, that was my initial reason how it has developed over time. Yeah, it's been interesting. Like I, I remember I used to follow like certain homeschool pages back in the day. Like I'm talking like 10 years ago, like 10 years ago, homeschooling has evolved so much in the last 10 years, which like I was the only black mom in those spaces homeschooling. So homeschooling is definitely more prominent now because it's growing in the last 10 years. But myself being like a black mom in those spaces, like, that's like, that's, that's a whole nother side story. (laughs) Oh yeah. But yeah, there was some like Facebook pages and stuff I used to follow like 10 years ago. And I was just like, what in the world? Like, what in the world was I like, like, why? Like, (laughs) this is a mess. This is a mess. So yeah. So I think, you know, racism and just, you know, racial unrest and stuff over the years has definitely impacted how I homeschool, like just how those two intersect because those groups of people are mainly white evangelicals and also how they made me feel when I was in their spaces. You know, I say there with air quotes um, because I felt isolated and I didn't feel like there was really space for me to bring my children to. Yeah. So how, how had it evolved? These are people who I go to church with and to see how they responded to, you know, situations more specifically like Trayvon Martin. Mm -hmm. Like these are people who I share community with, with homeschooling, but also people who I share community with by going to church. And so it's just like, just that was definitely a turning point for me. Just really reevaluating just these spaces that I'm in right now and knowing like, Hey, we can't stay here no more. Like this, this, like for years, it's kind of like, Hey, is this a personality issue or is this racism? You know what I mean? And so, um, it's like, nah, they don't, they, they don't dislike you because of your personality. Like they dislike you because you're black. And so, yeah. And so once conversations about police brutality started to arise within white evangelical church and just to kind of see their responses. I started to reevaluate like all of that. So like where we're going to church, like where we're homeschooling. So yeah, so it's definitely evolved because of just kind of the ripping the curtain back from how these people are really feeling. So it's like, you know, they're not being shy anymore about being the closet racist, so to speak. And so now these conversations are more at the forefront. They're getting more comfortable again to voice their opinions. And so it's just like, these aren't safe places for me or my kids. What do you think has led to that increase? As far as the white evangelicals, like what is causing them to kind of be more honest about their racism? Yeah. I think that's so interesting because a lot of this stuff 
you know, a lot of these conversations we're having about why people are so emboldened now. We can blame that on Trump, right? <laughs> For the last four years, because he's really fueled and given people permission to yeah. just say what's on their mind, tell it like it is, and making people comfortable to not hold those feelings back anymore. I, I honestly want to say it kind of feels like a catch 22. Because I think when we have the conversations about like Trayvon and they make national news that it's kind of put in the faces of people. And so people start to form opinions about the stuff they're starting to watch. And so eventually they go from watching this news channel to going to news channels that don't talk about Trayvon at all, uh, like Fox News. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so what I think calls it increases the fact that it's being put in your face and you can't look away. Yeah. You know, you always have people who who kind of say the sneaky snide kind of undertone comments and you're like, hmm. But now, like, you know, when that stuff continues and continues to be put in people's faces, they either want to do something about it to help change it or they want to insert their opinion that fuels their underlining racism that's always been there, right? Exactly. Um, so yeah, that's what I feel is just just the awareness part. And like I said, it's a catch-22 because this stuff is all, police brutality has been around uh, since forever. But the fact that it's, there's this kind of resurgence of really putting it on people's TVs and saying, hey, like you can't not look at this and yeah and just continue to ignore it. So so yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned something earlier um about being busy in terms of homeschooling and stuff. So this might be a good time to go into telling us what are you doing right now? Like what are the projects that you're working on? Yeah. So I work with the witness, a black Christian collective. I am uh, admin in their past the mic group. I've been so probably for like two or three years. I'll say that. Yeah. And I do, I'm a co-host with Jamar Tisby on his podcast footnotes. We haven't been recording lately because he's trying to sell his book, how to fight racism. So if you guys don't have that book, grab that. I've um, got mine. Yeah. <laughs> so he's in his busy book season right now of selling. So We'll definitely get back on to that. But, you know, just also since we haven't been actively recording, I've been trying to still keep a brush up with the news and what's going on. Um, I do have my own page, Black Women Plant Seeds, that I kind of started. I think you and I had a conversation about just why it has started. It. And, you know, I, I really started the page because I wanted to create a safe space for myself to be able to talk about all these things that are going in my head about the world and anti-racism. And I just wanted to save space where I could just be my complete self um, without family members who haven't really been interested in my personal journey, so to speak. So yeah, that was really the reason why I started the page and I have more traffic on Instagram. I really just started it for myself, but it's it seems to be growing a little bit. So yeah, as far as my, my Black Women Plant Seeds page goes, I, you know, I might post up there, like I posted something today. 
I really give myself permission to space and permission to post things on my own terms. Like I'm not going to force myself to post if I don't feel like it. For me, it's not about educating my whoever's following me. It's about, hey, if they learn something from something that I post, that's great. But really this page is more so just a safe space for myself. And if it grows in the process, I'm super thankful. Yeah. I kind of want to dig into Black Women Plant Seeds a little bit more because I feel like that's really where some of this story, where all of these Mm -hmm. things sort of culminate in terms Mm -hmm. of your very personal lived experience, being Mm -hmm. a mom, being Mm -hmm. a homeschooling mom, Mm -hmm. being a Black woman, being a Black woman in an interracial marriage, Mm -hmm. and being a Black woman who lived and did you grow up in white evangelicalism? Yeah, so, so interesting. I have a Facebook group for people who are biracial and also an interracial relationship. And I've been hearing a lot of lament from my brothers and sisters who are in interracial marriages lately, just about their white spouses. And so I did a live inside of the group a couple of weeks ago and just was kind of sharing my experience as a Black woman in a relationship with a white man. I grew up in the Black church, but my mother was a single mom. And so once we moved out of my grandparents' home into you know, a townhouse in Virginia Beach, we stopped going to church just because I think the location was an issue. And then just You know, the weekend was downtime for my mom after working all week. So we kind of stopped going. I mean, we did stop going. That was kind of when my Black church experience ended. Although I did have friends who were a part of the Black church. And so I would go stay the night over their house on the weekend to go like their family would go to church. And so I would go too. And I I had no issue with it because that was so much a part of my experience, like I love that element of still being able to go to church, even as like a middle schooler or a high schooler. So when I met my husband, though, he wasn't my husband then, but at the time I met him, I met him when I was 14 and he was 15, but he took me to his church. Like his family was part of the church and have been like Christians all their majority of their life. And so he was my friend who I was catching rides with to go to church. And so meeting him and him bringing me to his church was kind of the first time I had been inside of a white church. Like that was my first experience. So I was maybe 15 or 16 years old at the time. I shared all that to say about the group that I have and the live that I did was once we got married. So my first experience was entering the doors of white church when I was six, 15, 16 years old. And we got married when I was 19. So that's three years later. And so my experience was because his family was already involved in church, mm-hmm. I naturally gravitated towards this environment that I had already kind of been exposed to prior. Sure. Because I didn't have that any longer on within my side of the family. Mm-hmm. So I naturally gravitated towards his church because, you know, he was, his family was already in church and we had already been going. And so naturally that was just what I had been used to and what he had been used to. And so naturally we just kind of 
gravitated towards his church, which was, I, so I'll say I was the first black member there. This was like a 19, we got married in 2003. So just think about that. Like I was the first black member there and I had been going, like I said, I've been going to that church. We got married in 2003. So I started going to that church three years prior to that. And we had been married for a couple of years before an older black couple started going to that church. So, and they became members. So they were like the second members of the church. Um, so yeah, that's just to kind of give you some context of just the space that I was in, kind of introduced to and then kind of naturally gravitated towards. And and so because we were so young and just still really learning, you know, about what we wanted for our family, I definitely feel like that was a factor in the amount of time we stayed. So, you know, like I'm in this place mm-hmm. where over the last seven years, like for myself, mm-hmm. I've been going through this deconstruction process mm-hmm. of, you know, my personal story is leaving the institutional church mm-hmm. and and just exploring and digging into like, what is it about the institutional church mm-hmm. and, and where do I feel like as a person who identifies as a follower of Christ, mm-hmm. like, where am I feeling compelled and moved. And it's no coincidence that when I started that Mm -hmm. deconstruction process, but I didn't realize this at the time, Mm -hmm. that my journey into anti-racism and racial justice work just went through the roof. Mm -hmm. And and I recall initially like being shocked and surprised Mm -hmm. and horrified by the interactions that I would have because I brought all my naivete and ignorance Mm -hmm. and everything Mm -hmm. to it. But I was kind of like, Christians, come on now. This is something you care about, clearly. Mm -hmm. Jesus loves justice. Mm -hmm. Jesus is justice. You know, like, let's talk about this and Mm -hmm. the vitriol and hatred. And I mean, I've never been blocked by so many people just Mm -hmm. for like, honestly, I can be sassy. I promise you I was not being sassy in these conversations Mm -hmm. by like white men and pastors in Mm -hmm. particular who were like, oh, you're talking about racism. You must be a Marxist, socialist, this, that, the other, Mm -hmm. you know, and like all this stuff. And Mm -hmm. I didn't understand it at the time. And I'm not kidding. Like I had Jamar Tisby's book for a couple of years Mm -hmm. and it's like I didn't even want to read it because I didn't want to deal with the church. I was Mm -hmm. so mad. And then when I read his book, it was like the aha moments. Mm -hmm. Like now I get it. Now I understand how this has been institutionalized in the church. And so for me, kind of going back into my reconstruction in a sense where I'm at at the moment. I'm really, you know, like exploring a lot and learning a lot from black pastors, theologians, mm-hmm. voices, people, mm-hmm. friends, community, and and kind of like rebuilding and, and integrating something totally new. And so I'm just curious for you on your journey, what has your journey been like? in deconstructing like white evangelicalism and stepping into your own like faith. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. Uh, To be honest, I am still in process. (laughs) Um, Same. Yeah. I, yeah. If I could give you like the short answer, I will put still processing. Um, But yeah, my journey. Wow. Yeah, it's been 
It's been very interesting. So the church that I spoke about, the one we got married in, we had our kids dedicated in, I got baptized in, we stopped going to that church because we moved up here. And so when we moved here, we were looking for another church and the naiveness of our next choice of church was just, you know, just kind of what we were familiar with. This was before Trayvon. So I'll lead up to, I'll kind of do a little high level timeline of just my journey. So yeah, we found a similar church that was, you know, a little larger than the one we had come from, but it was very similar feel, similar vibe of the last church that we had left. So we went there for about maybe five years like but I'll say I was probably checked out two years prior and the reason we ended up staying just because we were we were in a season of having children (laughs) I think the thing that really impacted me during that time looking back now is just how individualistic the American church is And, and I really felt it The one word that sticks out the most during my first church experience was the isolation. Um, The biggest word that sticks out to me in the second church we went to will probably be the individualism of the American church. Wow. We stayed there and Trayvon had happened and then Mike Brown happened too. And so once those two kind of police brutality, racial those murders had happened. This was also during that time I shared with you about just kind of, uh, we were kind of in transition personally as a family. So I started asking questions. I'm just like, all right. I was still in contact with some people from our first church and they were kind of acting a fool about Trayvon. You know what I mean? And I was just like, okay, y'all acting crazy over here. Let me come over here and see what my church is talking about. And and, I already, already knew that there wasn't going to be much of a difference, but I wanted to kind of uh, poke the bear a little bit and yeah. see how they would respond. And so they, I mean, they responded like I thought they would, and they responded similarly to my my old church. And that was definitely a part of just, just also like you mentioned, like, hey, Jesus loves justice and you guys don't y'all care about this. And why are you saying that he deserved to be murdered? Because he smoked weed or he got suspended from school or, you know what I mean? Like, like what kind of talk is this? Like, this is not when I read the Bible, how you guys are responding, the framing of how you're responding is not how I have read the Bible. And so I felt very confused and just disoriented during that process. And I'm just like, okay, like, like this, this is a mess. Like, like y'all supposed to be Christians. Like what's going on? You know what I mean? Right. So how we ended up leaving the churches, I like sent the email to all the pastors on staff and all the elders. Like I, I copy everybody on a, on a uh, email and I was just like, Hey, like what's the response to, you know, this police brutality and the murder of Mike Brown. And the response I got back was out of all the, People I cc'd in the email, they had the one black guy who was a deacon respond back to me. And, and to sum up his email, it was a very all lives matter response. And so 
that gave me my answer to like where they were. And so after that, we were kind of out the door. I feel very passionate about anti-racism and just the church and the witness or the lack of being a witness to the world. It really breaks my heart that if I am one person, like how many other people are feeling this way, where there are in churches that are just ignoring the cause of justice and just the hypocrisy within the church that that breaks my heart too. Yeah. And I always say like, you know, I'm not looking for a perfect church or a perfect pastor. I just want people to tell like the whole truth and repent too. You know, it's just like, Hey, I did this and I was wrong and I, and I need to take these steps to be better or change. But like, we're not like, that's hard. That's hard to get people to do, you know, that's so hard to get people to leadership anyway, to admit any kind of take any kind of accountability for um, things. I don't know. I I wish the church in general was leading from a very more transparent and vulnerable space. And that's just lacking. I, I think right now, especially during this time, and I feel like the church needs to be transparent and vulnerable. In, being willing to talk about things that are not the traditional things that they talk about. I think it's really critical now for the church to be extremely transparent on where they are and say it from the stage. Like, hey, like, yeah, there's a level of of transparency, but it's, it's still kind of uh, scripted. If you guys are concerned about people's salvation and their lives, their lived experiences now, you know, then y'all have to really be like transparent about things that you have gotten wrong in the past and kind of frame that like every Sunday, you know, like, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's kind of where I am with my, my, anyway, my passion is that, um, like my passion is anti-racism and just the intersection within the church and just the hypocrisy like, I feel, you know, just called to kind of speak into that. And for me, like, it's really important for me to reject the the hypocrisy in all of that. It's kind of disorienting, right? Like, you kind of go through this, yeah. this, this deconstruction process and you continue. And, like, you do the internal work, right? But then you continue to hear... Just different situations, different scenarios, different stories, other people's stories about experiences that they have gone through, hearing from pastors, you know, online or whatever. And for me, like I I have to in my body, like reject some of the stuff that's being said, because it's just like, I know that's not right. But like they have a platform and they're sharing this word with people who will take it in and not examine for themselves and you know so long story short my passion is just really to speak into that like I can't that's that's the one thing I cannot not look at or it's the one thing I can't put down or turn away from like I wake up with speaking the truth into to what should be you know Mm. speaking the truth into what should be Mm -hmm. like that is profound to me yeah. And not even from just 
what I feel personally, just what I understand like the Bible to say, like, and, and within context too, right? Like we can also have a conversation about how often pastors take Bible verses and misconstrue them even, even today, even currently, right? For me, you know, with my journey on just going through this journey of being in white evangelical spaces, like for me, interrogating <laughs> literally everything. To give an example of just interrogation, you know, me and my husband had a conversation with someone in the church recently. And after the conversation, you know, my husband's question to me was like, hey, like, have we been so us in this journey together? Like, have we been so in the trenches with this, you know, this anti-racism, this intersection of anti-racism within the church that we're kind of jaded to what we just heard from this person of this church, you know? And I was just like... I was like, I hear you, but I don't think so. Like, no, like, no, like I, we've been doing this long enough to know like what's right, what's wrong and how people are going to respond. Like we know how people are going to respond. It's almost textbook. It's all like, it's, it's literally almost textbook. And so is, yeah. I, I appreciate him, you know, trying to not being his feelings about, you know, the conversation we had. But yeah, I think in this journey, like just interrogating everything, like what I mentioned earlier, just about rejecting this false ideology and just just this also this continuing of hypocrisy within the church. Like I hear your words, but like where your actions too. It's hypocritical for you to say that, but you're not really doing it, you know? So yeah, yeah. You know, there's this tendency in me that wants to fix and do, right? Mm -hmm. And I understand that that is a product also of like this white supremacist culture mm -hmm. and thinking, right? Like mm -hmm. I want to fix things, I want to do things. Mm -hmm. So I just want to say that that's not my intention here. Mm -hmm. But what I'm thinking about is for people who are listening to this and who mm -hmm. are like, okay, Obviously, they need to be following Black women plant seeds. And I want to talk about that, you know, toward mm -hmm. the end a little bit more. But do you have any recommendations for, for you know, well-intentioned people who are listening mm -hmm. and who are like, okay, I need to get off my butt and start doing something. Mm -hmm. I need to move beyond the acknowledgement that, yes, I hear what you're saying. Yes, I believe what you're saying. And, and actually move past that hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. What do you recommend for people? Is there a question <laughs> that you think people should be asking? Is there mm -hmm. a book? Is there like, what, what would you say to people who are sitting here kind of thinking about this? Yeah, that's, oof, that's a really good question. I think my answer, even though it's not comfortable for people is if there is someone who can recognize like, Hey, like, you know, my church or my organization is saying this, but I don't really see them digging in. Like I can identify, like I hear the words and it, and I, and I even see the performative acts that my church or my organization is doing. Like, honestly, my answer, which is not comfortable at all is 
I would probably take some time away if that's possible from that space to kind of to reevaluate because it's hard to kind of like deconstruct when you're still in the same environment. So that that's one thing is I would I would probably take a break, like just from maybe going to church or maybe going to whatever organization you're a part of. If it's work, then maybe set some boundaries on, you know, certain things because it's I don't know. I just feel like it's almost it's really hard to de and I'm saying this as a black woman, like it's hard to deconstruct like, hey, that sounds hypocritical and I need to propel myself into a way where I can really take action. But like if you're still in that space and you're still listening and you're still like taking in all the things that the leadership is saying, it's just hard to deconstruct where you want to go. So I feel like as long as you remain in that space, honestly, it's just going to keep you there, honestly. Um, So for myself personally, I've taken breaks from spaces where I need more clarity on how to move forward. Um, Because I know as long as I stay in that space and I wrestle in that space that I'm going to feel stuck. So that's my advice is just kind of step out of that, take a break from those spaces that, you know, you can identify that are hypocritical. And while you're taking that break, fill yourself up with people who are speaking the truth so that you can get fed. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because if you just take the break and you just are just not doing anything with that time, then I don't know, it's kind of for naught. You know what I mean? So follow Black people, Indigenous people of color who are having the conversation. So you step away from that space, but then you fill it with people who are already speaking to these issues that are doing the work to propel people into action and encourage people into action. So yeah, that's my little advice right there. That's good. And I will tell you, as many years as I've been having these conversations, not one person has really ever said what you said. So when you were saying like, (laughs) this is going to be hard, I'm like, yeah, Mm -hmm. this is hard work. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm ready for it. What do you, and then for you to just Mm -hmm. say, take a step away Mm -hmm. and, and sitting there with that, like, wow, that is really uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and powerful because Mm -hmm. to your point, how do you deconstruct something that you're within? It's really hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is. I'll give an example of my husband. <laughs> uh, I'll give an example of my uh, my white spouse. You know, he works in a corporate business. And so those businesses are filled with white men. And so you have to be able to be aware of this kind of work that you do so that when you do like, you know, when you, you do step back into those spaces that um, you have clarity of mind of your presence as a white male or a white person um, when you're in those spaces because it's very easy to be sucked back in. So yeah, my husband, you know, it wouldn't be very wise for him to quit his job, but he does have to exist in that space. You know what I mean? So it's just like, take that break, get some knowledge from people, Black, Indigenous people of color who are doing that. And so um, if you do have to go back into those spaces, you know, you're aware of yourself as a white person in spaces with these other white men who are struggling and therefore you won't get sucked back in. But you got to step away to be able to do that. 
for situations like churches, like people don't want to leave their churches. You know, it's that's a very uncomfortable thing for them to do. It's like the scariest um, thing for so many people. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. It's it's very scary. I've done it a couple times. So it's not as scary, but but it is complicated too. And so think of, you know, if you do take a break, take a break. But then if it comes to the point where you feel like, hey. I don't think I can exist in this space anymore. Then come up with a plan of what that looks like in the next six months. I'm probably not going to be attending this space that I know is not going to change. I've asked all the questions. I've done all the meetings. You know, I've had the conversations with people and I just feel like they will remain stuck, but I cannot remain stuck. And so for me, I have to remove myself out of the scenario to grow um, and not be stuck with them. So, so let yeah. me ask you a question from my vantage point, being a white woman and, and thinking about like this concept of, I need to go get my people. I need to be mm-hmm. doing my mm-hmm. internal work. I need to be having the conversations with other mm-hmm. white people and bearing that weight and that burden. Mm-hmm. Would you say that this advice is different for different people? And would it be such a straight separation Mm -hmm. as like, if you're white, it's very Mm -hmm. different? Or would you say there's even some nuance within that? Because I do feel like, well, Mm -hmm. if I'm in a white, a predominantly Mm -hmm. white space and I'm having these Mm -hmm. conversations as a white woman and Mm -hmm. um, things aren't changing and shifting, Mm -hmm. like for me, is it partly my responsibility to be the one who might lead that change or might stay there and sort of agitate. Cause the thing I think about is like for white people who many of us on our journey, like we, we go through these various mm-hmm. degrees of like shame and pride. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, right, a lot yeah. of people get to this point where they're responding a lot from like the trauma mm-hmm. of just realizing that mm-hmm. you have been a part of this project of whiteness Mm -hmm. that stripped you of your ethnic identity and that there's all of this carnage and stuff attached Mm -hmm. to this, might it be easy for white people to be like, I'm out, see ya. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of it a little bit Mm -hmm. from that standpoint. What do you think about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that because the word I'm thinking about is accountability. (laughs) I was thinking about that word, um, accountability, when I was talking about my husband. I think for people like, you know, for anybody white, but something him and I have conversations about is just this accountability with other black indigenous people of color who are doing anti-racism work. Let me be clear. <laughs> um, exactly, yeah. I'll, let me answer the question like this. I, I, I do think it's important for white people to stay in those spaces to a degree, but also if they are the ones who are kind of heading the charge, leading the charge. I I always think that there needs to be some kind of black, indigenous, and people, person of color, anti-racism uh, accountability with that. Like they should have like at yes. least maybe two or three people who they are going to and saying, hey, like, can you check me on this? Like, I just want to make sure I'm not overstepping with, this situation I'm in with this organization I'm a part of as a white woman or, you know, a white man. And so I think that's really important. So I think, I think it is white people's responsibility to fix racism, which they created. (laughs) But also I think, 
I'm really big on being mindful when white people do do that work, just making sure they have accountability people that they can go to to be checked on. Yeah, because really, like, I would never think of myself as doing the work or leading the work. So Mm -hmm. understanding that my role is to focus on internal Mm -hmm. deconstruction, Mm -hmm. remain Mm -hmm. there as a voice. But Mm -hmm. I mean, in a perfect world, Mm -hmm. I mean, it would be great to have resources and connections Mm -hmm. with people outside whose Mm -hmm. role it is Mm -hmm. as Mm anti-racism educators Mm -hmm. for churches specifically Mm -hmm. to then say, hey, you need to bring these people in and pay them. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, that would be like the ideal situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe more and more people will do that in business and um, Mm -hmm. pursue that. And by people, I mean, black people Mm -hmm. leading that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so I would say, for example, like in a work situation, as a white person who's already been educating themselves, learning from other black people you know, you start to, it's like, it's like the identifying and interrogating. It's like, I have this awareness and now I'm at this point where I'm identifying and I'm interrogating the space that I'm in, where I'm asking the questions like, how are, you know, for example, how is this area of my job being just in how they treat this group of people? Is there a discrimination in my job setting? And I think we can also ask those questions in the church setting too. Like, who's represented? Who's at who's at who's at the pulpit every week? Why is there only one black woman on staff? And why does she speak like once a year? You know what I mean? So I think as a white person, white people can ask questions like that and kind of interrogate spaces like that. It's just really starting to identify like what's wrong here. You know what I mean? And start start the conversation a lot of times when black people start that conversation like they don't want nothing to do with it but the more i mean i'm and and i hate that like i think as a group collectively it's great right that's why we gotta all be doing this because the more people we have doing this we can impact some change and that's you know that's another thing is just like we can't be doing this by ourselves you know we need help. We need each other to be able to push this needle. You know what I mean? Right. So yeah, yeah. Asking the questions and interrogating those spaces. What gives you hope at the moment? <laughs> um. Yeah. What gives me hope? Yeah. Jesus does give me hope. Yeah. I just, I just think about like the circumstances that I am in. And my family, not my household per se, but yes, my my black children, but also like my extended black family. I just think about how Jesus has been like with my ancestors during this course of America and um, how I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the strength that God has given to my ancestors, you know. Mm So that that is one thing. I I really look to my ancestors and just you asked me what I was passionate about. I'm really into like uh ancestry and genealogy stuff. So I feel like this deep connection with the names, you know, that I can find, you know, up until a certain point of my ancestors and just thinking about their journeys and thinking about 
in the context of America, like what they were experiencing during that time. And so I have hope that I want to say, I feel like we're in a better place, but we still have so much work to do. Mm -hmm. And so my hope is that the work that they laid for me, that in my context now is hope that I give to my children and my grandchildren and my great grandchildren. So, yeah, I do see glimmers of hope, you know, out in the world. Uh, And I try to focus on those. The perseverance to press on is hope for me. You know, the the drive, Mm -hmm. the spirit that God is pushing me to just continuing to run this race of this mission bill that that just needs to be. Yeah. It just, it needs some help. (laughs) It just needs help. So, yeah. So where can people follow you and find you and how can we support your work? Yeah. So you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, um, Black Women Plant Seeds. And I have a link tree on all of my, um, either pinned to my page or in the bio section of my page for support. Yeah. Great. Christina Button, thank you so much for coming on Story Power Podcast. It's been a pleasure getting to talk to you face-to-face, although nobody else gets that pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 